Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For over 10 years, VOC Nation has taken listeners behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Our hosts are not only experts on the business, but have lived in the business. Subscribe and hear weekly podcasts from hosts like legendary pro wrestling journalist Bill After, former Impact Wrestling star Wes Briscoe, former WWE and AWA broadcaster Ken Resnick, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, former WCW star The Maestro, NWA legend, the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez, and much more. VOC Nation programming is free on most major podcasting apps, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Radio.com. And video podcast and bonus content is available on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. What are you waiting for? Head to VOCNation.com and dig into the most comprehensive podcast network built for pro wrestling fans. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at VOC Nation Wrestling Network and follow us on Twitter at VOC Nation. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. Our guest today is a returning guest, the historian of wrestling, if you will, and also a co-host of the podcast titled AWA Unleashed with Chris Tubbs and Mick Karch. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome back Mr. George Shire. George, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate As it. As always, I'm glad to be here. Wow. It's yeah, fun. it's great. I, I love having you on. I always, and I tell you this every time, but it's the truth, I always get such positive feedback when you're on here. And a lot of hits on our YouTube slash podcast audio. You know, and I know you're a busy guy. You do a lot of podcasts. And uh, I just appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to be on here today. So, Well, you know the old story. I'm retired, so a lot of people don't think I have anything to do. You know, they think once you retire, you just get up in the morning and you go to bed at night, nothing in between, you know. But uh, it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> I, I have teased. Honest to God, Brian, I've teased a lot. I have no idea how I'd fit an eight-hour workday plus travel time doing from it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm with you. So today we're going to talk about old-school wrestling, uh, specifically, you know, pretty much 1990-ish back. Yeah, back. That's considered by most kind of the golden era, if you will. Yeah, yeah, pretty uh, much. Predated, you know, when, you know, a lot of stuff was, you know, the kayfabe eras and bad guys versus good guys and, and 
the heat and all that. And that's what, you know, we're going to be talking about today. So George is the expert on it. He's, you know, followed this since he was a young child and has all I the, fool a lot of people. Well, you correct a lot of people when they're wrong. No, right? I fool a lot of people. I just, they think I know a lot. I, uh, you do. I mean, you have all the, you have your filing cabinets full of information. I do know that. I've, I've seen it. So, uh, you know, but I want to talk to you first about, you know, when these guys, uh, the promoters, you know, back in the late forties when the NWA was formed and some of the other independent, uh, territories, you know, it was, uh, to me, and you can kind of elaborate if you would, more a simpler time as far as like the booker. Can you kind of go into what the booker's responsibility was and what their role was, I guess, with those wrestlers and, and the cards? You know, the word booker, I think what you have to do is if we put it into context, we have to move a lot further into maybe into the 90s and beyond where, or even earlier than that a little bit, but the booker became more common of a of a uh, person in the wrestling office, so to speak. Uh, in my era, Brian, the booker was known as a matchmaker. So just a different terminology. And uh, here in our own AWA territory, um, even back in the NWA, you know, I always tell folks, remember that Minneapolis is kind of divided into two parts. We had pre-AWA through the 50s and even the late 40s. And then after 1960, we had AWA. It was NWA during the 50s. Uh, we had a guy named Bill Casisto. And uh, Bill was an old wrestler during the late 30s into the 40s. And uh, he started working after his retirement. He, he had to retire from wrestling. He had gotten seriously injured and wasn't able to continue. So he started working in the wrestling office. And uh, he was known as the matchmaker. And he would, you know, work closely with the promoter. And, you know, they'd basically, between them, come up with what they were going to do, how they were going to do it. And, of course, you know, in that scheme of things then, who's going to win and how's the program going to uh, proceed? So a matchmaker was just a little bit different name. Bill Casisco worked in the uh, Minneapolis uh, Wrestling Club. For, uh, well, up until about, I think he passed away, if my memory serves me correctly, around 1973-ish, without looking it up, late 72 or 73. And uh, they made a big deal of it when Bill Casisto left. He used to come on television on All-Star Wrestling and and announce matches or different things. But uh, he pretty much was your, what you'd call your modern-day booker. He helped come up with some of the finishes and different things. And that's pretty much how it worked. Okay. Let's talk uh, promoting your cards back then. Now you have, you know, social media. Um, but back then it was, you know, there was no social media. There was no no internet. Uh, no. It was basically, I mean, I think it was more challenging because I think you had to have more people involved if I – I'm right about that kind of stuff well, promoting the card. What, what, what I think you you have to do. Um, I, let me. And can I back up just for a second about sure. the matchmaker yeah. thing, yeah, the booker bet. thing? Wrestling in that era, 
when we go back to the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. Um, so much of what was promoted and presented to the people was done in the respect of, uh, for lack thereof, sometimes morality, lack of it, yeah, or or different things that are going on around the country where they could play off of, or different events that were taking place in a particular town or part of the country, and that's where you know a lot of the characters and the personas that were presented to people with wrestlers. Uh, you know, you and I mentioned this in the past where you had. Uh, after World War II, you had all of the the Germans and the Russians and the the Japanese, and you know we've talked how you know that we all know till we got into the it's even the later 90s when we started getting politically correct where everything was you know you got to be careful how you say what you say and who you address with yeah. certain things. Yeah. So I mean, back in that era, I mean our wrestling cards around the country were just loaded with literally programs on them saying Polacks and Japs and Dirty Russians and uh, the Krauts, you know, and, and everything for the, for Germans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, but it sold. That, yeah. that was part of what drew the people in. Yeah. They played on emotions, the, yeah. the promotions and the wrestlers themselves. And it was so interesting because most of the wrestlers that played those particular, a German role or a Japanese role, uh, a Russian, so many times they weren't even that nationality or that ethnic background at all. Uh, Ivan Kelmakov, one of the famed Kelmakov, Ivan, you know, Russian brothers. He, He was... Ed Bruce from Detroit, Michigan, you know, just a normal dude, you know, and, uh, and even, even Kenji Shibuya, who wrestled as one of our top Japanese wrestlers. And, and he was a heel like you wouldn't believe they hated Kenji Shibuya because he was always karate chopping people and throwing salt in the opponent's eyes. And, and, uh, but he was Hawaiian, you know, Robert Shibuya and, yeah. You come up with this Japanese, all because after World War II, mm-hmm. you know, who did we hate more? Americans hated the Japanese. Yeah. So it, it played, uh, and it isn't even that we hated them. It's just that the news and the sentiments and the, the war and everything just yeah made it work, and wrestling just picked up on it. Yeah. So you always had, I, I've been laughing because I look at our, uh, what's going on right now in our country yeah. and with Russia and the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, there, there's no one that's even brave enough to go no. into, at least I hope not, but a wrestling promotion wouldn't even touch this anymore nope. where you'd have the evil Russians or something like this, because I tell you what, we literally, they'd be burning buildings down. And yeah. It's different, different atmosphere. So it doesn't play out like it used to. Uh, used to the fans could go to the arena, boo and hiss and, 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 you know, against the Japanese or the Russians or whoever were in the ring, mm-hmm. the Germans and, and they could leave the arena, go home and everything was normal. They, you yeah. know, they just, life went on. It yeah, isn't I, that way. No, I think it's 
people, different time, different uh, culture, you know, people are more sensitive now. Yep. And well, and rightfully we should. There, there is a point to where, you know, yes, you know, you got, you can't, there, you shouldn't cross a certain line, but there's also, I think wrestling back then was an outlet mm-hmm. for people. You could go into an arena, even when I was a kid in the, in the eighties, you know, you could boo people, you know, and, and you know, column names or whatever. And once you left the arena or wherever, the armory or whatever, it was done. It was done. You went home. You know, well, it and was. You didn't, and you didn't have the news outlets and the, the, the sources to obtain information or lack right. thereof right. as we do today. Right. So people, you know, what they read in their morning newspaper. And uh, what they got for, you know, their 15 minutes of news on TV a day, mm-hmm. that was it. We we yeah. got no more back in the, well, I shouldn't say we, because I, I wasn't around in the 40s, but yeah. we, we didn't get, uh, yeah. we didn't get anything more. Well, yeah. And yeah. so you went about your life. Yeah. And so it was very different. Yeah. I think the last time that wrestling, uh, pro wrestling really tried to, that I can remember at least, that tried to expound on the, the the war type situation was probably with Iraq and the Iranian crisis and all that that took place here, you know, coming up on what, 30 years ago now or or more. But, uh, you know, I know WWF at the time tried to really uh, make money on that. And they had Mm -hmm. Sergeant Slaughter turn turn on the country. And, you know, again, all of that just, it, it's very touchy today. Yeah. So I don't even know, Brian, if Sheikh Adnan El Casey, now 30 years removed yeah. from when he was a hot uh, attraction, yeah, I, and with the uh, the Iraq and Iran, Iran and everything that was going on back in the 80s and the very early 90s, yeah, I don't think he could pull it off today, probably without getting shot. I mean, yeah, you're probably you know, right. Unfortunately, it, it, we got a different environment out there. So, yeah. and I think they'd be afraid. I think they'd be afraid to try to do it today. I really do. I'm with, I'm with you. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's too dangerous. Um, and they, they can't, I, not everybody, but a lot of younger fans now today can't leave what happens either on the show or if yeah. you're at the arena there and go about your day. Well, and, you know, you brought up something in your introduction uh, today mm-hmm. when you talked about heels and baby faces, which, you know, maybe we'll touch on a little bit more in a bit. Yeah. But it was in that era, it was so clearly defined. Yeah. You know, when you went, when you watched All-Star Wrestling or Championship Wrestling or whatever the name of your wrestling program was, mm-hmm. It was very clear to the to the viewer, to the fan, who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. There was there was no question. I mean, they they looked different, they they acted different. You know, one was a, a the the heel obviously was obnoxious and unruly and and a brute and a bully and and a braggart and you know the the good guy was just calm and collected and. You know, sweet, you want to bring them home to meet mother and have supper, you know. And it's not that way anymore. Now, 
I mean, uh, you, uh, you turn on the, the wrestling and, uh, and I don't do this very often, but I'm telling you, I don't know who the good guy is. I don't know who the bad guy is. I don't, because number one, they switch back and forth so many times I'm dizzy. I mean, within, within <laughs> no, a matter of weeks, you know. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, and the fact that they, there's just no longer a line. Yeah. And, and in that, uh, vein of things, that's the way it is with our society today. Mm-hmm. We, at least my my perception in my seventy year old eyes, we we no longer have a clear definition of good and bad. Yeah, everything is gray. Yeah, and so wrestling, wow, it has yeah. it has changed. Yeah, yeah, George, I I you know I agree with you, and uh, like my kids. Even my grandkids, you know, they're different, uh, different uh, in all that aspect. You know, I, I took a, a grandson once to an event, and uh, I mean, he had fun with it, but yeah, it's just it's just different. So it, it's it's hard to explain with the younger ones, but uh, I get your point. So you know, nowadays too, you know, the big. The big ones back in the 60s, 70s, even into the late 80s, you know, AWA, WWF, NWA, they would hit the small towns mm-hmm. and they would hit, you know, an armory, a high school, uh, you know, whatever local event. Uh, that was so good because in my hometown of Rice Lake, Wisconsin, okay, like 10,000 people there. Today they wouldn't even touch it. The, the big ones, you know, right. the WWE, the AEWs, uh, Impact. Well, the money then, isn't in the money isn't in those little venues anymore. Even in the house shows, it's not right. there anymore. But I'm saying back in the day, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, even uh, the AWA came to town at least once a year. Yeah. And that's when they were big, and and you saw guys. Like the Road Warriors, the Freebirds, or Bachwinkle, Rick Martell. I mean, I could go on Hulk Hogan that uh, were in my small town. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. Sergeant Slaughter, who I talked to at WrestleCon uh, this past weekend, his first match in the AW, his first match ever, which was in the AWA, was in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, with Playboy Buddy Rose, different name at the time. Uh, but I didn't know that. And, and that's just amazing to me that nowadays you wouldn't hear of, uh, you know, WWE come into Rice Lake, Wisconsin. They're going to come to Minneapolis, St. Paul, because that's a big town, you know, big money. But they're not going to. Even come. then, it's only then. Even then, it's only in any of these big towns today. Mm-hmm. It's usually only once, maybe twice a year. Mm-hmm. And the card that they present is it features all of their current crop of wrestlers, mm-hmm. but there's nothing there's nothing really built up in the program to say yeah. you know why so and so is going against that wrestler. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's different. Wouldn't work. Right. I I, I want to go back to the armies and high schools. You, I remember on our, I think it was our first podcast together, your first or second one we did when we were talking about you specifically, you promoted a card 
at your oh, high yeah. school, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, with some pretty known well wrestlers. And yeah. that experience for you, I mean, but I, I think that has lost its value. But what's your opinion on that versus today the – the, the arenas are all arena matches versus the old school way of armories or, and, and high schools. Well, not that we're going to just talk about the AWA because it, it really no. worked this way for all of the big territories. Yeah, right. Okay, so it didn't matter whether you were down in Texas or the Florida circuit or out in California or wherever. Um, the, the small venues, what you had was the AWA, we'll use that as an example, they would run their big city cards. By the late 70s, we were into once a month for a Twin Cities card, either St. Paul or Minneapolis. And then you'd have other big cities on the circuit. You'd have Milwaukee. You'd have Chicago. You'd have Winnipeg, Denver, and so on. You get where I'm going. So during the course of a given month, the, the wrestlers are going to have all of those big towns. But then during the course of the week, they throw in a, what they call a spot show at one of the local gymnasiums in the school or um, the National Guard Armory, which was a smaller venue. You know, at a National Guard Armory back then, if, if you were you were lucky if you could draw 2,000, Maybe three thousand people could fit in there. Yeah. Our St. Paul, our St. Paul National Guard Armory used to used to be. If you had three thousand for a card, you you pretty much had a sellout. Okay. Uh, but you go to the small high schools, which you got to remember too that a lot of times those were fundraisers. Um, the right. the high school yeah. itself or some town event. It could be the JCs in town, or it could be uh, some ladies' club, or whatever it was. They would contact the wrestling office and bring them in. And the wrestling office, the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, now in this case, they would work with the group, mm-hmm. and they had a they had a fee that they were taking, you know, a percentage out of the gate, yeah. whatever they decided on, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But the wrestlers themselves. Obviously, they weren't getting the big paydays that they would if they were three nights later in Milwaukee or Minneapolis yeah. at a big house show. Right. But they were they were picking up money as they're doing their travel. Yeah. And they could do, you know, two or three spot shows a week, and they they made good money. Yeah. And then do you know then do the house shows, the big house shows on the weekends, or you know when I go back to, uh, I think about Dallas. Mm-hmm. Fort Worth. Yeah. They ran Fort Worth on Monday night, major city, and then they ran Dallas on Tuesday nights. And they were in every week promotion. So, and back then, I remember uh, Dallas and Fort Worth, I think, were about 60, 70 miles apart. I don't know if. Yeah, they're not that far apart. No, they're, pretty, they're pretty, you close, know. Yeah. So, technically, a fan could go to Fort Worth on Monday hop in the car and an hour later be in Dallas yeah. for the Tuesday card. And you don't have to stay overnight, you know. So it was these these fans had it made because they had two major house shows a week. Um, most of the big cities like that had a regular night that they promoted. The Twin Cities was always 
back in the 60s, always Saturday night. And that was in the days when they would tape the program on TV right before the house show. So it would be a live broadcast. And then you'd, as Marty O'Neill used to say, run, don't walk to get your tickets. And they, and literally they would have a good walk up from 7.30 when the show ended on TV. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline to 9 o'clock or a little after when the actual house show was to begin. And there were a lot of times when, you know, they'd sell a couple, three, 4,000 tickets within that hour and a half, two-hour span because the fans would get all worked up from TV. So it was perfect. But it, what you mentioned about the, the uh, gymnasiums, yeah, uh, you go to a typical – high school gymnasium with the bleachers set up and a few chairs on the floor. Boy, you might get 300, 350, you know, maybe a little bit more, but yeah. that, that would have been, that would have been good. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guys, I, I tell you what, when I think back to all of the hundreds, literally hundreds of cards that I saw over the years, yeah, I would take a lot of times I would take one of those small gymnasium cards yeah. over one of the big house shows yeah. because there were so many interesting things that happened on them. Yeah. You'd have you'd have an advertised match that uh, didn't happen for some reason, and a substitute was made. A lot of times the substitute was better. Yeah. You know, and, and you, got, you definitely got your money's worth. Yeah. But the, it was a chance for the smaller – the card you mentioned that I did in 1970 – Mm-hmm. Our gymnasium held about 350, I think, if it was set up right. We had, that night, I know we had a, it was full. I mean, when I stood in, I was the ring announcer that night, and when I stood there and looked around, I didn't see any empty spaces. So that's cool. But you got to remember that Cottage Grove, that's the city I was in. Well, Cottage Grove is only. 12, what, 10 miles from the St. Paul Auditorium in downtown St. Paul back in the day. So it wasn't like we were way out in the sticks somewhere. There were certainly fans that if they'd have known about that car, they could have driven down Highway 61 and boom, they could have hit Park High School for a, for a, a Tuesday night wrestling car. But generally the small town just drew, you know, our school family or whoever it was in Cottage Grove. But yeah. they, they were always exciting cards. They, uh, we used to drive down to Mankato and Oatana and New Alm and Redwood Falls and Ortonville, just some of those southern towns, Albert Lee. Uh, we'd drive down, I mean, I'd drive down to some of those small towns on a regular basis and just see some dynamite cards. Yeah. Usually they only had either six to eight wrestlers on a card. Mm-hmm. Most often it was six. 
Yeah. And what they would do is they would have a lot of times they got into having a tag team main event. Yeah. And then they'd have uh, the wrestlers from each side of the team wrestle in two singles matches. And what they do with those two singles matches is they they build it up so that you're just so ticked at the heels or whatever that you want to see the babies get even with them in the tag ball. Yeah. So they, they kind of built up their own little yeah. TV thing without TV. Yeah. Or if they didn't have that, they would have a tag team main event, maybe two name wrestlers in the semifinal, and then a guy from each team on the tag team main event would wrestle in the opener. And again, that's to set the fans up for that main event. Yeah. Because the baby face would inevitably be cheated and beat up and, you know, it got to squall, you know, yeah. everything in that opener yeah. so that by the time the main event comes, the fans are out for plot. Yeah. It just worked out good. Great yeah. for me. You know, I miss it because we, when I was a kid, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul, you know, that was where the big stuff was. But it's two and a half hours. Yep. Uh, from where I was from, so you know my parents weren't big wrestling fans by any means, so they're not going to drive their kid. I feel your pain. I felt uh, they're the not going to drive pain. their kid two and a half hours to a wrestling event, especially if it's on a weeknight yeah. when they got to work the next day. It's right. just it just wasn't going to happen. So when those shows would come to my town, the AWA, and they had two or three of their top guys coming in, I mean, the house was full. I mean, it was that, always at St. Joseph's Catholic High School, or Catholic School Gymnasium. Mm-hmm. And it was always full and always had a great card. And like you said, you kind of explained it. It's a single matches, the heel, the baby face, two or three of them. And then they get up at the tag team match where they go against each other. It was, But the formula worked. Now, was this something with your – the Catholic high school you're talking uh, about? It, yeah, I, I I didn't go to the high school. I just okay. I just went to the cards. Would this, this have been though? Yeah, it was for been, it was a fundraiser. It was in the yeah, it was a fundraiser for the school. Okay, you know, and, and and so it worked though, and yeah. and I get I get the point where they want to make money, right? I get it, but they also I think gave back more then to the communities <laughs> and to mm-hmm. organizations, uh, not, you know, nonprofits and all that than they do today. And I'm not saying they don't do it. I'm sure they do. But if they're in right. like WrestleMania, okay, this past Dallas. Yeah. They had a bunch of things going on with several nonprofits, but you didn't see them in, you know, Odessa, Texas, I'm just right. using something, a small town because they're not going to do it there. <laughs> it's really sad to me. Well, you know, in those in those small towns too, the um, again that seventy card that we talked about, mm-hmm. that was a fundraiser for the. Uh, well, we had two of them. I did another one that was for the Chase Seats, the Cottage Grove Chase Seats. Okay, but the one that I'm talking about was for the, uh, the Cottage Grove Police Reserve, the Police Reserve Department, and. The source of, you know, getting the word out, they didn't advertise these spot shows. Any towns I've mentioned to you, they they didn't advertise these on All Star Wrestle. The only thing you got on the on the TV show was the big arena show in the downtowns coming up. Yeah. And so the 
small venues, it was up to the the organization that is trying to earn the money, the fundraiser. They would go around and they would sell tickets. Mm-hmm. They would, uh, you know, they have the kids at school selling tickets, and you, you'd go to the lo- some of the local vendor or uh, stores. They'd have tickets available for the card coming up in, you know, end of the week, and you'd get your tickets there. Yeah. And you, they'd have in the in the store windows the the old cardboard posters yeah. that you know are very valuable today. People, you know, I mean, these things if you can find them, they're yeah. they're hot stuff. Yeah. But they would put those in their store window, get your tickets, you know, at Joe's Bar and Grill and and Ace Hardware and whatever it is. Yeah. And that's how that was their word of mouth, and they always did good. Yeah. Uh, we did the one with the JCs, and uh, again we had the gymnasium was full. I mean, it was a little more work because you worked with the organization. So the organization, like you said, they would get on the radio, your local oh, radio yeah. station. Yeah, we'd have we'd have a local mm-hmm. radio station, the radio stations, yep, yep. Uh, the newspaper. You could even. Uh, Maybe if they, those guys were coming into town that day, maybe get them on the radio mm-hmm. for the afternoon and say, hey, come out tonight, whatever. Uh, we're going to be there. You know, get with, um, with Cottage Grove, we have the South, the South Washington County Reporter newspaper, which came out every Wednesday and used to deliver them. But they would put an ad. In their paper for two or three weeks coming up before the, you know, the Park High School card. And a lot of times, too, until we'd get to that probably maybe a week and a half, two weeks out, a lot of times we never knew who was going to be on the card. We were at the mercy of the wrestling office that they were providing us wrestlers. And then to get those posters printed up, you know, then you'd get, you know, Dr. X and Cowboy Bill Watts. Wow, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I missed that era. I'll tell you. I'll be honest. I mean, you, <laughs> wow. You know, uh, we talked a little bit about using uh, TV and, and the magazine. The magazines now, you know, they're you don't see them. I mean, Pro Wrestling Illustrated is still around, but I mean, all the covers, you know, WWE and AEW. I mean, that's all I ever see on the covers. You know, back in my day and probably your heyday, they had all these different territories on there. Every month, you know, they'd have that list, the top ten, you know, uh, who, what territory, you know, the top right. ten territories they'd have in there, and the top <laughs> ten champions, tag team champions, most hated, most popular. To me, that was just so exciting. I'd get that magazine every month. And I'd be reading it. You'd, and some people you, you never heard of before, and you're like, oh, that's, you know, Southeastern Championship Wrestling, you know, talking about uh, well, I'll do, Wendell Cooley, for example. Probably nobody's hadn't heard that name in I 30 years. Yeah. But, you know, you didn't have Internet and all that mm-hmm. back then, so you'd have to read about Wendell Cooley. Well, who's Wendell Cooley? Then you'd read about Continental Championship Wrestling or something like that. Today that's just not around. Well, the thing the thing with the old wrestling magazines, the newsstand magazines, later on in the into the eighties, they became known as the After magazines because Bill After, <laughs> Bill After, who's yeah. a great guy, by the way. You know, yeah. Bill's yeah. a friend. He's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, but 
the magazines, if you go back a little bit before Aptor's magazines, you know, we had Wrestling Review and Wrestling World and yep. Ring Wrestling. Um, then, you know, then we got into the wrestler and inside wrestling and eventually Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And there were others that were here and there over the years. Yep. You know, you'd open them up. And I think the fun thing was, as a fan, when I'd go to the drugstore in those days and there'd be the wrestling magazine on the, on the magazine shelf, you know, you could open it up and you go, oh, wow, it's got a story on Red Bastille. Well, you, you, I would remember that Red Bastine had worked here in Minneapolis. And now look, he's, he's wrestling in the Carolinas or wherever it might be. Or you'd see somebody and you go, I never heard of this guy. Well, then lo and behold, you know, all of a sudden, maybe six months, a year down the road, this guy comes into your territory. Well, I remember seeing him on, you know, in the magazine article. And that was the fun part of it. You always, and, and, and the stories were written very simplicity in them. They, they didn't reveal any facts or anything about the guys. They just talked about, you know, they were a bad guy or a good guy. And you, the way they were built up, you were excited maybe when they were going to come to your town. It, it, yeah. it was a lot different. And they did have those ratings. I love it. A lot of times people talk about the official <laughs> ratings. Well, you know, what they do with any of those official ratings is they pick the top 10 guys in the territory and they just put them in whatever order. Sometimes it was the opinion of the editor of the magazine. Yeah. Or, or a couple of the staff members of the magazine. Yeah. Sometimes it made sense. Sometimes it didn't, you know. When it was fun, you'd say, well, look at Vern Gagne's rated uh, right above Lou Fez. Wow. You know. Yeah. Wow. I also enjoyed like, some of those magazines. They have the color. Uh, Photos or the, you know, posters in there and, you know, you could hang up, take them out of there and put them yep. in your room. And yeah, it's that, that to me, I really enjoyed it because I got, like you said, you saw this guy here and then six months later, oh, he's in AWA now when he was, you know, four months ago, he was in Texas. You know, I never heard of him. It was funny too. When you talk about the magazines, every once in a while, they'd come out with a, with a photo album. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Wrestling Review, they actually, over the course of their run, before they were sold to the Canadian company in 73, so I'm talking the original Stanley uh, Stanley Weston uh, magazine, they came out with four different photo albums only. And they were on glossy paper, full-page photo of the wrestlers, and... Boy, I'll tell you what they have in there. Maybe 50 wrestlers that were featured full page, mm-hmm. page after page. I remember the first one I, and I would have been, boy, what would I have been about 12 years old. I went to the drugstore and here's the wrestling review photo album. I opened it up and I mean, as a little kid, you know, I, and just my eyeballs, you know, just like in the cartoons. And at that point in time, I figured I, when I bought that magazine, which was only, uh, it was 60 cents and it had crossed off on it from a dollar down to 60 cents right on the cover. Wow. I mean, it was printed on there. Yeah. 
But I, I, I bought this magazine and I thought, you know what? I've got a picture. I've now got a picture of every wrestler out there. And some, you know, some of them I'd never seen. Whipper Billy Watson. I never saw Whipper Billy Watson. And I remember Edward Carpentier was in there and I'd never seen him. And then, you know, you'd see one of your favorites, the Crusher and the Bruiser was in there and Gene Kaniski. And well, I thought, you know, this is really cool. So I bought two. <laughs> well, I saved one, of course. And then I thought, you know what? I really need to get a third one. And I went and I bought a third one. So I, I, I still have my original one perfect. But the other two, as a dumb 12-year-old, I took the pictures out and I trimmed them because they had squares, you know, they were in a square block. Yeah. I trimmed them. And back in my dumb year, 12-year-old year, I put them each picture on a piece of construction paper. <laughs> and then I put them around my bedroom. You know, all these pictures lined up going up the, the corners and across yeah. the middle of the room. And I just thought, you know, I got the coolest room in town. Yeah. I mean, this was a typical fan. Yeah. But yeah. the pictures, uh, they were a little bit heavier paper, of course. Like I said, they were glossy pictures. And Wrestling Review did four of them over the course of their run. So, and each one was a little bit different, you know, because they'd be a couple of years apart, so there'd be some different wrestlers in there. Yeah. But, uh Yeah. What boy you look forward to? I think back yeah. to that as I'm telling you this, and I hadn't yeah. thought about that in yeah. a long time. Oh, I used to run down there to the, the a little gas station that sold those magazines. I'd run down there every month. My mom would give me, you know, a buck seventy five or whatever they were, and uh I'd run down there. I knew when they come out, <laughs> and I'd go down there and buy it. And uh I did what you. I didn't cut them out, but I always. They always had a centerfold, you know, poster of, you know, whoever, Ric Flair, and I'd yeah. take him out of there. And, yeah, I miss those days. But. Well, and it's funny when you mention Wrestling Review, because I think I mentioned this to you in one of our talks. Mm-hmm. In 1959, I, I walked – my grandma lived about six, eight blocks from a local shopping center. And uh, her and I used to walk down there. So I'm in 59, I'm eight years old. Yeah. We walked into the drugstore, and there was, at the time, it didn't have the significance to it that, you know, it does today. Mm-hmm. But it was issue number one of Wrestling Review, the fall issue, 1960, or 1959. And I begged my grandma for 50 cents. That's what it cost. Yeah. And I'm eight years old, and I remember my grandma saying, 50 cents, that's a lot of money said, oh, but Grandma, look at They have a picture of this guy and whoever it was in there, you know, and it was yeah. somebody I knew. Yeah. And so I have that issue. Wow. God bless you, Grandma. Yeah. I still have it. I still have it. And I'm proud to say it's in great condition. That's so awesome. I, That's wonderful. It's good to you know, hear. Great memory. Yeah. Let's switch it over a little bit. Kayfabe. Oh, yeah. Some fans probably don't even know what that means, kayfabe. If you would, please explain what uh, kayfabe is and how it was used back in the day and how it's pretty much absent now, if you would, please. The simplest definition of it is kayfabe is a carnival-type way of talking 
that wrestlers would do when fans were in the vicinity of earshot. They would go into this. Uh, if you want to get what it's really close to, have you ever talked pig Latin? No. <laughs> you, do you know what pig Latin is? Is that where you change your? Yeah, well, it's like parents? if I said, to, all right. If I said to you, NK, ooh, yay, under, under, and stay, igbe, at, and lay, if I eat, stay, ooh, to you. See, I just ask you, can you understand Big Latin if I speak to you? Well, or something similar to that. Not exactly perfect, but, um, but technically that's what it was. It's putting the beginning of the word at the, at the front and kind of playing it. So most fans didn't know, but the actual kayfabe part of it was that they, they portrayed wrestling as being the word real, mm-hmm. you know, and we've had this discussion a million times about the word fake because wrestlers really don't like that word. They never did. I don't even know if today's workers would enjoy being called fake, even though it's out in the open now that whatever we do in the ring, we're just doing it because we're having fun. You know, we're entertaining you and it's not real. Because they don't pretend anymore. But in that day, boy, I tell you what, they went in the ring and they literally put their bodies on the line. I mean, I don't care how many times you get slammed on the floor, how many times you get banged into the ropes or into the turnbuckles, and and how many times you, uh, you know, your body just takes a beat. So, yes, they protected each other. I mean, that was part of the deal. But that's really what kayfabe was. And then that carnival language that went with it. Um, I know I mentioned to you one time, the very first time I walked into uh, a wrestling locker room. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming through the door. I'm a little kid. I'm with Red Bastine. And I, I come through the door and all of a sudden just total silence. All the guys, they just stopped. There, there's an intruder in there, this little kid. Yeah. You know, I was 16 or whatever I was at the time. And until Bastine told him, you know, the, the boy's okay, he's fine. Well, then they started their going about their business, whatever they were doing again. But that's how they protected him. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be to the point where when you'd see Ivan Koloff walking down the hall, well, Ivan Koloff would never talk to you in his normal voice. He would be the Russian, Ivan Koloff. And he'd talk to you with whatever his version of a German accent was that he used. And, and, and Jim Rashke would be a good example. He would never talk to you back in the K Fabe era as, you know, just plain old Jim Rashke from Nebraska. He just didn't do it. But he'd talk to you, you know, and he'd have his, his German, his version of the German accent. Yeah. So that's how far they went. And that's what K Fabe was. And, and again, Making people believe or telling people that it's real. And, you know, we've, we've got a lost art because for the, the, the main thing was is that all the years I'd sit at ringside, I'd hear some fans would yell, you know, something, it's fake. You didn't even hit him or something like that. And then you'd hear, you know, a few minutes later, you'd hear the same guy go, Oh man, did he hit him? Wow. You know, well, they believed. For, for whatever reason, it, you know, and any wrestler, if they could make you suspend disbelief for even some of the match, they did their job. Yeah. And that 
that was what was important. Yeah. And in 1989, Vince McMahon Jr., you know, he pretty much, what a lot of people already knew, but he came out and he, he said, it's entertainment, people. It, 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 with predetermined endings, we're, endings, we're, uh, we're entertaining you. And the general consensus back then was, well, he just killed wrestling. Well, he didn't. He's got his own version of the product. He's got his own fans that have continued to support his product and him. And, you know, life goes on. Yeah. So letting, letting the people know the secret of pulling the rabbit out of the hat hasn't hurt it at all. In fact, I suppose one could say it's bigger and better than ever with what it's drawing. Or the merchandising, if nothing else, is a huge part of it. Yeah. The uh, the marketing of yeah. of the wrestlers, which probably my era missed out on. They they didn't have the foresight. They, did. they didn't have the foresight to uh, to realize that there's money in in well bobbleheads and and shirts and all kinds of memorabilia. You know. Yeah. No. Yeah. You're right. I think if the promoters back then would have, hey, let's start selling some T-shirts with guys on it or their logos or whatever. Well, you know, the AWA got to that point in the early 80s. Yeah. They started having some T-shirts with the guys on the arms. And, yeah. You know, the Crusher had yeah. a T-shirt with his image on it. And uh, I think he had on the back of the T-shirt, how about that? You know, most yeah. fans would, uh, they got into it with uh, Bobby Heenan when he was, Telling people he didn't want to see any weasel weasel suits or weasel shirts and weasel posters. You know, that was the thing. Ben would come in and show a poster of a weasel and Heenan would react to it, and, you know, yeah. tell the referee he wants them to stop. Well, Bobby was selling them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were his. Nobody knew that. Yeah. So, I mean, they were starting to pick up on it, you yeah. know, and it was it was the fans that were changing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I got to agree with you. So let's talk about your era. So if we could, your favorite baby face during your key era time. Who is your favorite? I think I know who it is, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Who is your favorite baby face? Who do you think it is? Well, I'm going to say Dr. X. Well, that, Okay. He was a heel, too, but, I mean, I'm going to say Dr. X. All right. Well, when you ask me a question like that, I'll be honest with you. Anytime anyone has asked me that, it's a moving target sometimes for me. Literally, it is. Mm -hmm. And the reason being, and I I am going to give you a favorite baby face, but I can tell you that at different times over the course of my being a fan since I was – eight years old, that I've had favorite baby faces that at that particular time, I would say, yeah, they probably were my favorite. Mm-hmm. But because I've seen so many of them, and I, I had the opportunity to see so many different ones, um, yeah, it's a moving target. But my my personal, and I'm going to, and this is going to tie back in that you bring this up. This is going to tie back into what we talked about with some of the magazines. 
if I have to pick one baby face that I just, for whatever reason, he's withstood this, the test of time. First of all, I'll tell you, I loved Moose Evans when I was a kid. Now, nobody today even knows who Moose Evans was. Yeah, but Moose Evans was a lumberjack-type wrestler. He had flannel shirt. He had the sleeves cut off, and he had them fringed, mm-hmm. you know, cut where they're fringed. And then he wore a pair of blue jeans that were cut off at the knees and that they were fringed around his knees. And that's what he wore into the ring. He'd wrestle with those those blue jeans on, take his shirt off. And Moose Evans was six foot. He was billed about six foot eight. I think he was probably legit six four. Big guy, popular. As a 12-year-old kid, I loved Moose Evans. So he would have been my favorite wrestler. But, again, as I go through the years, I've had other favorites. Doug Gilbert would have have been a favorite. The original Doug Gilbert, not the newer version. Uh, Cowboy Bill Watts. Oh, man. I was gaga over Cowboy Bill Watts. But here... Here's the guy that gets the credit for being my personal all-time favorite. Billy Red Lions. Oh, okay. Now that's a name that when you, when you, if you really want to look at the scheme of things, Billy wasn't the biggest name in the business, but he was a big name. But here's why, here's why I like Billy. And it goes back to when when we were talking about magazines going to the newsstand and yeah. you'd see somebody in there. Yeah. Well, I used to see in Wrestling Review and the others, etc. I'd see a picture of Billy Red Lions in the territory wrestling somebody. But the real key for me came where I told you one time before that I used to exchange programs with yep. various yeah. fans and promoters. Well, I used to get the Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston programs weekly. And for about the second half of the 60s, one of the most over baby faces there was Billy Red Lions. I, for whatever reason, I was just enamored with this Billy. And I, this is weird now. I love the name, Billy yeah. Red Lions. I mean, so I mean, how, how, yeah. how average of a fan was I? I was just your normal fan. So I loved Billy Red Lions. Well, here's where it really hit home. The one night in August of uh, 1968, mm-hmm. when Billy Red Lions made his AWA debut, he he, he debuted on TV, All Star Wrestling. Mm-hmm. He was unannounced; nobody knew he was coming into the AWA. There was nothing in the wrestling programs at the arenas. Nobody mentioned it on wrestling. So the match is starting, and. Billy Red Lions comes in and gets introduced. I'm serious. I just about had a stroke. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, here's Billy Red Lions. I'm going to really see him. Well, now, here's what adds to the excitement. He's getting introduced, and his opponent that night on TV, from parts unknown, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know how much he weighs. We don't know where he's from. All we know is he's Dr. X. <laughs> Dr. X. Now, Dr. X, he's the biggest heel we had in the territory. And here was the little click. At that very moment, Dr. X was AWA champion. 
Uh-huh. Vern had given them the title for two weeks. He lost the match, and they were going to have a rematch two weeks later, for, you know, at Ganya's rematch. But in between that two weeks, on that TV show, or the, the night of the, the rematch, I take that back, on mm-hmm. the night of the rematch, X is going to defend Vern at the live show that night after All-Star Wrestling. And he, he loses on TV to Billy Red Lions, who, as a kid, I just thought this was beyond cool. And Billy beat him with a figure for a leg lock. <laughs> and that's the, that's the hold that, that Dr. X was beating everybody with. So you see the excitement that's, yeah. that's there? Yeah. So number one, I'm seeing this Billy Red Lions that, for whatever reason, in all my programs, there's Billy Red Lions, and I just love them. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to see them, and, I, and I'm and i going to that card tonight now, and Billy's going to wrestle, or Doc is going to wrestle against Vern. Well, as scheduled, Vern won the title back. And Dr. X came out the following week, and he was livid. They threw me this ringer on TV. This guy, I'm preparing for a championship match. They give me this Lions. I want this bum in a match. He he totally upset everything. Well, at that exact moment in time, we didn't know that Lions and Dr. X were real-life brother-in-laws. Oh, wow. Okay. Dr. X was, in other territories, was the destroyer, the mass destroyer. But here he was Dr. X. Well, Lions and the Destroyer had teamed together in the past, and they had feuded. Usually when when Destroyer would come into a territory, a short time later, Lions would show up, or vice versa. They, They did this through the course of their career, and they had a program against each other. So now we were getting it. And right there, Lions became my number one favorite, and I never, I never, if I have to ask, who it is, it's Lions. All right. Now you're heel. I think it's probably Dr. X, but I could be wrong. Okay. It is. Okay. It is. But again, yeah. keep in mind that it's a moving target sometimes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. I loved Nick Bachman. Yeah. As a heel, Nick rocked. Yeah. I loved hard-boiled Haggerty. I can't tell you, anybody that didn't see hard-boiled Haggerty, this guy – in fact, he would probably be right behind Dr. X. He, he, you, you just don't – if you didn't see him, you don't realize how good he was mm-hmm. at working the crowd. Yeah. And when he did his interviews, man, you could hate this guy, <laughs> you know. And truth be told, if you remember the uh, sort of the quiet and – snobbish type interviews that Nick used to give. Oh yeah. Where he didn't come out and spit and and, and right. growl and bark like a lot of the heels. He was even keel and arrogant and made you hate him because he's just such a you know hard boiled Haggerty was a lot like that. Very much so. And I don't I don't know I know yeah I was, should have asked Nick one time if he ever copied any of it, but uh Haggerty was a lot like that. Yeah. So yeah. I think if you ask me, I had a lot of heels that I loved. Mm-hmm. I loved Nick as a heel. Yeah. yeah. Um, Larry Hennig. 
oh my gosh, Harley Race. Yeah. You know, at any given time, they're my favorite wrestler. I yeah. mean, my favorite heel. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I'm with you. I'm with you. So, one more question. Will, do you believe that old school wrestling will ever come back? Oh boy. Mm. You're hesitating a lot. So I'm gonna... No. 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 Okay. Um I think the key word in your question is old school wrestling. Mm-hmm. Will it ever come back? And I don't think so. Um the other night, I don't do this very often. Mm-hmm. The other night, well last night. The other night, last night, Monday night, I happened to turn on WWE. And I had it on during a ladies' match. The ladies' match was on when I turned it on. Um, as I watched the entire match, and I was already saying, okay, I got to put an end to this because I'm gonna, I need this time back in my life. But as I was watching it, there's nothing old school about it. The two ladies, and I'm trying to think who it was, who they were. Do you watch WWE? I don't even get it here right now. Okay. No. Whoever they were, Brian, they were doing so much flying around, flipping, kicking, stomping, biting, throwing each other out of the ring, off the ropes. There were no holds. There were no stories. It was. And I sat there for the 10 minutes or eight minutes, whatever it was. And my only question in my mind was, if all of this were even a semblance of real, how would they be alive? Yeah. (laughs) There's no rhyme or reason to anything that either of them did. They were just out maneuvering maneuvering one another so fast. Yeah. And so when when you use the word old school, um, I had a fan ask me about two weeks ago, via email to explain a storyline to him. Okay. It was one of the deals in the question regarding our AWA podcast. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there's the key right there, the story or the line, the storyline in any match today so that wrestling could come back. They'd have to go back to having a storyline that they carry from the beginning to the end mm-hmm. without deviating from it yeah. and educating the fans as they go along. Yeah. The best example would be in a tag team match. In my era, we'd have a two out of three fall tag team match. Well, now you got one referee to handle these four brutes. Okay. You know that the one referee can't handle all of them. So that's part of the story. You also know that that referee is going to miss every time the bad guy does something illegal because the referee's trying to get the good guy's partner out of the ring because he's illegal, can't come in. You see how it works? That's part of the story. They don't do any of that anymore today. You, you turn on a tag team match today and all four guys are in the ring at the same time. There's no rhyme or reason. You know, um, 
But but yeah. the fans the fans evidently today like it and and buy into it, so okay. that doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. The um, the the storylines in those do we even have a two out of three fall match anymore? No. So those two out of three fall tag matches, you know, you'd end up with uh, the bad guy interfering and pinning the wrestler. And so now they're going to have a rest period during the tag team rest period. Well, then while they're doing it, the the bad guys are beating up on the guy that's trying to recover. And the referee's trying to get the other guy back into the ring, the good guy into the ring. I mean, the referee was so much a part of it. The referee's nothing anymore. Yeah. Maybe two months back now, I watched uh, a couple minutes of AEW. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's called. All, yeah. Is it All Elite or something? All Elite Wrestling. Yeah. Okay. It was a ladder match. Cody Rhodes was in it. And I forget who the opponent was. But anyway, there were like, honest to God, there were like a dozen 12-foot ladders in and around the ring. And they were throwing each other off, climbing up to the top, throwing each other off of them from the top onto the floor and to, and onto the top of another ladder. And then they bring another ladder in and hit them over the head with it. There's, I don't know that that's a story. Yeah. In our day, and people would, would surely yell boring, Johnny Valentine could get into the ring and he could put an arm lock on a guy and he could work that arm lock for 15 minutes with a little eye gouging when the referee's not looking on the opponent and, uh, you know, maybe a kick with his knee in the back or whatever he's doing, and he could work it, and that would work up the crowd. Mm-hmm. That's old school telling a story. But yeah. Johnny Valentine could make you hate him just by doing this this hole. Yeah. And so we really – we just can't compare the two products. Yeah. Apples, oranges. Yeah. I agree. Well, I'll tell you, I think, I'm hoping, I should say, it will start coming back. And I just, I mean, there's the NWA with Billy Corgan. I think that they're, uh, from what I've seen, trying to implement, and that's on YouTube. Uh, they have a weekly show <laughs> come out usually. They seem to be kind of going back to that slowly, you know, also integrating some other things. So I don't know, George, we'll have to just hope and see, and hopefully someday it'll, well, as, as they say, circle back. You know, maybe maybe if it were to come back even close to what I remember it as up until, say, the 90s, Yeah. Um, maybe it just has to go away completely. For a decade. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I've heard people tell me, and the reason I turned on that AEW card that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, I had someone telling me, well, you got to watch AEW because it's old school. They're doing it old school. Well, okay, I turned it on, and they were doing with the entrances, with the fireworks and the music and the big ladder match I'm talking about. They were yeah. doing everything the WWE does. So I don't know what old school is, what their definition of old school. Yeah. I think they mean more the the match. I think they're telling more of a story. But the glitz and eye candy glamour, yeah, that's all there. Uh, they're a little more 
I guess I want to say storyline oriented. So you're not going to see, there's no, like you said about that match earlier with the ladies, there was no story. These, I think, maybe not the Cody Rhodes match you watched, but like the Chris Jericho, he, 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 he tells a story. Chris Jericho is a good guy, is yeah. a good worker. He, yes. he, he tells a story. Uh, some of the other well, guys. Well, he's, he's from that old school. Guy. Right. He's, you know, he, the he last, came in on the, the he's last, the last of the, of the yes. ride of the old school. Right. Yeah. And Chris Jericho is one of my favorite wrestlers. I mean, I yeah. absolutely. And it's sad that he's uh, getting up in the years now. Yeah. I mean, he's the same be... age as me. He's 51 years old. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it is sad. Well, although I will tell you this, now you say you're 51, you know, back in my, in the, in my old school era, this is something people, today's fans would never get. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use a guy like, uh, what would be the best example? Holy cow. Well, when a guy came into the business, young kid in his twenties, generally, he would spend five to ten years working the territories in the opening matches or or mid-card guy working the territories like this for a good five, ten years before he'd land in a territory where he might now have honed his skills and his style and his character where he could now be the one to elevate to the next higher up tier. The difference today, and it has been for a number of years, is, well, not so much right now, but Vince McMahon would spot some guy nine feet tall and make him a wrestler. Well, it doesn't work. You know, just because you're nine feet tall doesn't mean you know how to lace up a pair of wrestling boots, much less get in the ring. But they they, they used that. And, and the best example of old school is you look at a guy like Nick Bachman. Nick started wrestling in 1954. Now, he had training. He had good sound training from his dad and from Luthez and Wilbur Snyder and other guys he worked around. But in 1954 to 1968, so we're talking 14 years, yes, he had some main events in some of the territory. He was, he was over big in, in the Pacific Northwest as a baby. Yeah. Uh, he had some runs in, in Texas as a baby. But generally, he was not that top-tier guy. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until he got to Georgia in 1969 when he decided to become a heel. And for that year in Georgia, had the Georgia run. And then he came to the AWA in 1970. Yeah. So here he's in the business for 15, 16 years. Now, when he won the when he won the AWA title from Vern in November of '75, Nick was 41 years old. That would be unheard of today for a 41 year old. Yeah. To, you know, get the title. They're giving the title today to the guy who's 20 years old and and can't work a match. It's so it's different. Yeah. But Nick and and he was how good of a champion and a wrestler was he? <laughs> Up until the day he walked out of the yeah. ring after his Kurt Hennig bout in '87, yeah. yep. when he left the ring on top, yep. Nick Probably, was still on top, yeah. and he's Great. 56. What was he? 56 or yeah. seven years old at that yeah. time? Great worker. Yeah. I couldn't stand the guy, but 
because <laughs> he played his part. You know, he, so when you when you say you're 51, though, I'm just yeah. saying a lot of those guys in my era, mm-hmm. the Crushers, the Bruisers, the Ganyas, the Thezas, the Kaniskis, the Millers, the Bachwinkles, yeah. on and on, they were all in their 40s and yeah. early 50s yeah. when they hit their stride yeah. and became the names that we yeah. now cherish. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I think Chris Jericho is the last of, the, of that breed, unfortunately. And and, you know, and I think he got a little bit of his training from Greg and Brun, Brunzel. Yeah, I'm not sure on that. I'd have I, to. I think I think they may have had a hand in in a little bit of his early training up okay. in Winnipeg. Yeah. I, I, but I think he also worked with Stu Hart. He, he did work with Stu Hart. I do know yes. that. Stu Hart, I think, was. Yeah. And if you worked in Stu Hart's dungeon, you know, you were good when you came out, or you were dead. It was only two choices. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Because <laughs> all the he, horror he, stories, yeah. He enjoyed stretching a guy just for the just for the sake of it. Stretching, you know, out. and then he'd he'd laugh. But yeah. look at the talent he put out. Yeah. And same. look at Vern. That's look what I'm saying. Vern, same thing. Look at Vern. You know, you talk about the guys, and you you know, I know you're a Flair fan, and you know that the story is true with Flair. Flair started Vern's camp, and Flair quit. He, he said, "I can't take it." Yeah. And he quit, and Vern actually went over to the guy's house and pulled him outside and said, you're coming back to the camp or I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. You know, you're coming back. And Vern, and, and look what a talent Flair was. Yeah. So Vern, he recognized, and so did Stu Hart, yeah. uh, Eddie Graham and Hiro Matsuda, Boris Malenko, those guys, yeah. trainers. Yeah. Um, you know, they they recognized what talent was. And they they work to make them good. Yeah. Look at the Funks. Yeah. You look at who the Funks put out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Duncan and and Rhodes and Murdoch and and Hanson and uh, DiBiase. Uh, and not only the Funks themselves putting them out. You know. Right. All the guys that went through their territory. Oh yeah. So it's, those guys knew talent. Yeah. Definitely. Well, George, on that note. I want to thank you, sir, for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I always I'll, have so much fun with you. I, I always have fun, and I always learn something. Always. <laughs> what would you, you learn today? Well, I learned about, you know, what they did back in the day, the okay, booker, what you call the, the matchmaker. Matchmaker, and you yeah. talked about uh, the magazines and what they did and, and the house shows and how they utilize nonprofits, you know, to help them raise money and and things like that. And kayfabe, you know, you talked to me in Big Latin. I thought that was pretty interesting. I went in in one time at a restaurant. I I was a snotty-nosed teenager, and I ordered two cheeseburgers and a Coke in Pig Latin. (laughs) And I thought the lady server – Literally, she just looked at me, the deer in the head, like, like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't think I could order two. I don't think I could say it anymore. East Chay Burger Bays or something. But I did it back then. Oh, that's true. Oh, it's fun. But uh, anyways, I want to thank you again so much for coming on here. And uh, this is a good topic. I really enjoyed it. I know the fans out there are going to enjoy it. If you're listening, thank you. If you're watching, thank you. And, George, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. And, folks, we will talk to you soon. Take care. Hey, this is Total Package. Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. 
Hey guys, before we get started, I just wanted to read this commercial because it's an agreement that we made with a really great podcast, and I want to tell you guys all about it. Pro Wrestling Interviews, it features guests who are hot indie stars as well as the greats of the ring. Each week, you can join the amazing Velvet as well as Dr. John as they host this jam-packed hour of interviews, pro wrestling news, and entertaining guests. It's an hour you don't want to miss. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Every Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern, just go to ProWrestlingInterviews.com, and it'll take you to their Facebook page where you can get the custom podcast link for that week. Don't miss a second of Pro Wrestling Interviews. That Sunday nights, 9 Eastern, ProWrestlingInterviews.com. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room. Every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Kazzy Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings. And then uh, I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stags of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You get ready to get nasty. Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts, and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hick, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Paul Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Bing, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOCNation. Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, Tony here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect well, is? Well, I'll tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found the true world champion. I finally found... What's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well, I think... Uh, I don't know what to say, but I, I want to say one thing. Bruno was an early champion. Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. Here's Phil Laughter, and once again, we're speaking here with 
Bruno Sammartino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiant? Well, actually, it was uh, uh, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it a loss. Did have anything to do? Well, yes, but the whole thing is that the rules, as I always understood them, was that you, the title could only be lost by tenor or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World Wide Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week, talking dream matches, taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation radio network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation.